0: Welcome to the Words Matter Podcast, enhancing patient care through better communication. Welcome to another episode of the Words Matter Podcast. I'm Oliver Thompson. So we're about halfway through the clinical reasoning series, and today I'm speaking with Dr. Easton Young. Easton is a physical therapist and assistant professor in the Department of Physical Therapy at the University of Toronto, Canada. His main area of research and teaching is in orthopedic manual therapy, as well as the assessment and facilitation of clinical reasoning amongst health professionals. Easton completed his masters in education at the University of Toronto, and his PhD investigated the assessment of clinical reasoning within manual therapy. So in this episode we hover around a research paper he published last year titled Making Strange, Exploring the Development of Students' Capacity in Epistemic Reflexivity, and that was published in the Journal of Humanities in Rehabilitation, and I've linked the paper in the show notes. So, in this episode, we speak about how the process of reflexivity, and in particular epistemic reflexivity, calls us to question or to make strange the taken for granted ways in which we practice. And we talk about the organizational and social structures which surround healthcare interactions and the embedded assumptions within our practice. We talk about how reconceptualizing practice also entails imagining other ways of how our practice could be. We talk about the challenges of becoming more or engaging in reflexivity. And we discuss ways that clinicians can better support the more reflexive aspects of their clinical practice and reasoning. So I really enjoy talking with Eason. The work he's doing within physical therapy education is fundamental. So I bring you Dr. Eason Jung. Eason, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So as a guest, you, you probably received some of the top recommendations. You probably don't know this, but people said, got to speak to Eason. You're doing a clinical reasoning series, got to speak to Eason. So, <laughs> so perhaps, yeah, it's great to finally, I want to say pin you down, but you know, it's nice to finally get to speak to you. Yeah, it's my pleasure. And so perhaps we can start by you introducing your, yourself, your kind of academic background, sure. clinical journey, stuff like that.
1: Yeah. So uh, my clinical training is as a physiotherapist and uh, I was practicing for a long time in mainly orthopedics in a couple settings, hospital setting and the community setting in private clinic. And uh, and then it was years after I became involved in university teaching, you know, a session here or there. Um, And that really sparked a strong interest in in education, in, uh, sort of mentoring and, and developing students in particular in their thinking process. I was really drawn to that and how, you know, as a physiotherapist, we were, we able to help them develop their capacity in thinking. Um, and so that, um, I led to, uh, my master's in education and then eventually a PhD in education. Um, and my dissertation is around clinical reasoning. And so it's something that's near and dear to my heart. And, um, I have to say, I'm definitely not an expert. I'm still unpacking a lot of what what thinking is uh, in, in our profession and how we develop um, our students, how we help them. And then also beyond, I think, you know, um, it's, as you know, like a, a long journey, right? So I'm also interested in how, as practicing physiotherapists, how do we support practicing physios in practice, in developing, further developing their thinking.
0: And that's a real p- contrast i mean the, our professions kind of typically are more interested in doing and what what students and clinicians do usually with hands or bodies or mm-hmm. you know the kind of instructive directive aspect of practice and the kind of technical skills but you were drawn towards how students and clinicians kind of think and conceptualize their work
1: yeah and i think it's for a couple of reasons one is it it stemmed from some of my, of my own frustrations in practice, that um, the way I was thinking was maybe not um, re- recognizing that maybe it was suboptimal, and how can I change the way I think to improve my, my interactions with my patients, uh, improve their outcomes, etc. Um, and so that partly came from my own experiences, and then um, for probably about almost 20 years now I've been working at the University of Toronto and teaching in uh, their physiotherapy program and um, and mainly in orthopedics and again teaching both practical skills and also thinking skills and I found that it's traditionally been kind of separate thinking and, and practical skills and how can we again develop the thinking so that it's not for lack of a term, marginalized or 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 you know, it's seen as less important, but it's actually critical to their practice. So this
0: episode or this conversation was gonna kinda of center or at least hover around this idea of reflexivity. Because of a a, a recent paper you wrote, I say it's recent, twenty twenty-one? I believe so, yes. Twenty, I think. Which was a a lovely paper with a lovely titled, and I'll link it in the show notes, but it was titled, Making Strange, Exploring the Development of Students' Capacity in Epistemic Reflexivity. A couple of biggish words there, but we're hoping that we'll unpack some of them uh, sure. during our chat, and that's published in the, a journal I hadn't seen, but looks I will keep an eye out for it, the Journal of Humanities and Rehab. So we're going to kind of hover around that paper, but also spill into um, associated areas like, metacognition and kind of other aspects of clinical reasoning. But perhaps maybe initially, I mean, let's unpack the title. Why not start there? The kind of epistemic reflexivity and just in kind of plain language, what that is trying to convey. Sure.
1: So the term epistemic reflexivity, I had to do a lot of work myself to kind of get my head around what that is. The formal, I think, definition is kind of like a deliberate practice, deliberate form of reflection analysis. And I think that last part is really critical to that term, uh, to the Mm -hmm. definition, the analysis. And so what it centers around is the questions about one's practice, things that are specifically usually taken for granted. So things that are assumed or embedded in practice that are not usually questioned. And specifically things about social structures, systemic structures, and calling into question those things that are not usually called into question. So, in teaching and in the physio program, for example, so things like power in the workplace, in the healthcare system, race and gender, um, ability, disability, um, so things that are kind of embedded in the things we do. So, you know, the Elka measures we talk about, what is valid, uh, you know, what is reliable, so things like that.
0: Yeah, and as I suppose we can just touch on that. So much of our practice is just in is assumed and taken for granted and we just kind of plod along in a kind of dreamlike state just doing mm-hmm. what we do and not necessarily taking a moment to to, to it sounds cliche to, to ask why or is there an alternative yeah. way or is there a better yeah. way yeah
1: no, uh, yeah, I, th- I think that rings true, and I think that's where some of, as as I was explaining earlier, some of my frustrations came from is that you know I've mm-hmm. I've adhered to these principles and practices of you know clinically reasoning through in an interaction uh, scenario, clinical scenario, but there were these things I was bumping up against, and and this is w- what kind of surfaced the the frustration was, you know, the the power in the workplace or the power in the that's uh, pers- perceived in or the actual power relations in the healthcare system that I wasn't um, attending to or Mm. was led to believe was maybe, you know, less important than the actual clinical skills that I was performing. So I think that that's why I think it's Mm. such an, something that I was really interested in exploring, So this idea of epistemic reflexivity. So...
0: I think with, with the paper, there's some I mean, you'll, you'll describe it much better than I. But it was it was a kind of qualitative study, let's call it that, with some interviews with students to look at how their epistemic reflexivity either developed or kind of manifested in the discussions with them. What so so and if we just step back, where did that research come from? So what? Why were you particularly interested in whether students reflect epistemically i may have got the ordering wrong
1: <laughs> in those words but yeah i i think it's stemmed from again my teaching practice um at the time when i we started this this project I was, pro- I was probably over a decade you know teaching in the program and again what i was noticing was um some of their frustrations i think some of their um comments and uh, informally about you know, what about power in the workplace? What about the systems at work that we're, we're not really talking about in, you know, these cases, paper cases or... And, you know, our program is such that they learn theory in the classroom followed by an internship. So there, it was these stark differences that they were referring to that we were maybe not attending to explicitly, I think implicitly, um, or maybe not enough, not explicitly enough, um, and so I think that's where it bubbled up and so we thought, let's explore how we can pay more attention to it.
0: And so, so you, so the study involved you kind of sitting down with you. These were students within your institution. So there was a kind of prior relationship there Were you, were you the educator, or were they kind of separate bunch of participants?
1: Yeah, I know they were they were students in the program whom I was teaching a course at the time and the collaborators. So um, Barb Gibson and uh, Stephanie Nixon and Islet Cooper, they were uh, critical in kind of developing this education initiative to try and focus on epistemic reflexivity. Um, so yeah, they were very much students that we were that were in the program that we were interacting with.
0: And I'm interested how you what sorts of strategies kind of questions did you ask them to try and to try and apprehend some of this stuff which is kind of so embedded in what we do and it's hidden and it's tacit and so what did you just get them to talk around their practice or their their learning
1: yes we built it around their experiences kind of like um why we wanted to look at this in the first place and and deepen our understanding of how we can develop their capacity and reflexivity. It was built around an internship. So before their internship, we kind of primed them with why this matters in the first place um, and how it gave them a bit of a structure, how to go about interrogating some of these assumptions. And and then they went off into a five-week internship and, um, they looked for some of these aspects. So they tr- actually practiced the, the reflexivity skills, if you will. So they did that for five weeks and they came back and we'd sort of debriefed with them, what were their experiences with, um, those tasks that we asked them to. So for example, they would try and look for things that were not usually questioned and sort of the impact that those, we call them objects. So things that might be surfacing that, um, in their interaction with their patients or their environment in which they were practicing,
0: any any examples? I mean, I've got some thoughts, but what what, what sorts of things were? I suppose from a kind of micro level, the, the clinical interaction where there's a pretty often pretty standard traditional kind of way of behaving with patients.
1: Yeah, for sure. So this is where you know this was several years back. So um, I think what we are doing now, it might be um, sort of merged with what I'm about to describe. Mm -hmm. So we left it quite open because we didn't want to prescribe this is what you should think about. This is what you should try and um, examine. Um, But we gave them some examples. So um, in that sort of pre-internship session, we gave them examples about um, that um, kind of got them thinking about more systemically influences that might influence practice. So what they centered on were maybe a bit more micro. So the logos at the clinic or, you know, how things are talked about words that were used in their interaction. Um, And so they zeroed in on some of the more specifics and the, and, and to be fair to them, it's more tangible um, and a little bit easier to get their head around.
0: Is, is the, view that when one kind of considers these these things whether they're the kind of Im, uh, embedded assumptions or structures around our practice and our work that we can then course correct so we think okay well uh, i guess i'm trying to get to what the outcome is of, of reflexivity like it's it's it can be navel gazily like you just you can just circle over Problems, and I suppose, when does one jump off and and correct course or change practice or change behavior?
1: Yeah, that's a really uh, good question. I think that's I think at the heart of reflexivity is the idea that it's you know maybe part of it is navel gazing and part of it is you know the in- introspection, but then what do you do with that? So it's kind of the the implications um you're thinking about. Should, Beyond your individual self, and that it has—it's trying to move. For example, in our our profession, to move the profession along, so to advance a profession, um, and to sort of think beyond the individual. And I think where I grapple with what where I've grappled with this a lot is like how does it map onto or overlap with clinical reasoning? It's so integrated with clinical reasoning. So when I'm interacting with a and the patient. I'm thinking about some clinical aspects that are specific to, you know, anatomy, pathology, et cetera. And then the person, and then the environment in which the person is, you know, that I'm interacting with them in. So I think, you know, it moves beyond just thinking about the individual person that's in front of me, uh, but then also systemically and the environment in which we're all operating under.
0: Yeah, and I think at that point we can say, well, Clinical reasoning would say it's got its own form of reflexivity called metacognition, which is going to build around it. And, and I suppose thinking about your thinking and the factors that limit it seem to that definition certainly doesn't do epistemic reflexivity justice. It's, it seems more, more considered. You've got stuff around thinking about epistemologies, the sorts of knowledge that you're valuing as a clinician.
1: And I think, So this is something that's maybe more recent insight for me um, is that I think clinical reasoning on its own is insufficient in my interaction with a patient that, that married with reflexivity, epistemic reflexivity is probably will will lead to greater success both at the individual level and also, you know, contribute to our profession. Yeah. Um, I think where it's a bit difficult to to navigate is, you know, what is the right proportion? Like what's the mix of like clinical reasoning? When do I focus on that? And when do I focus on reflexivity and how much of it do I do in that live interaction with my patient? Um, So I think that's something that still is something I'm I'm, I'm grappling with. And I think is probably worthy of a bit more um, thought um, and discussion.
0: And, because you talk about in the paper this kind of lovely description about reconceptualizing practice, or or looking at practice from different ways, and and that by doing that we can begin to to move between different epistemologies, or at least start to to value different types and and sources of knowledge. Perhaps if you're able to to kind of present, I suppose, what where that the starting point is. What what is current? How do we currently conceptualize practice? you know, Broadly, generally, and then what might be the possibilities of considering practice in different ways? Yeah, sure.
1: I think um, that argument probably comes from the uh, the notion that I think the dominant epistemological stances, right? You know, is um, you know evidence based practice, where the I think origins come from this experimental research and the emphasis on how knowledge comes from that line of research and it informs practice i think there's been lots of shifts away from evidence-based practice and to include a bit more other epistemologies so for example that you know um, subjectivity and how nature is constructed and it can that consideration of multiple viewpoints is also valued. So I kind of see moving between different epistemologies as this continuum between objectivity and maybe subjectivity and sort of in in between those is, is, is where I see practice or so like moving between, yes, I need to mm. value at some point um, evident, re, you know, hardcore research evidence from the RCT, but then also the subjectivity of the patient in front of me, so their experiences, my experience as a therapist, um because I don't think um, resting on mm. either end of that spect- spectrum tells the whole story about practice.
0: Uh, and you've got this lovely quote, which I think you used as a kind of category or theme throughout the paper, where uh, this notion of spidey senses that the participants kind of described and and I suppose tied to that alternative conception of practice which values knowledge beyond kind of propositional knowledge informed by kind of systematic observation and research, but things like tacit knowledge and values, beliefs. And so students when they use that, that phrase spidey senses, my spidey sense is that they were kind of trying to allude to this these other um kind of ways of knowing which weren't captured by propositional knowledge or research.
1: Yeah. I- I love that, that phrase, spidey senses. I think that uh, it came from one of the participants, actually. And so we've s- sort of adopted it. Um, and it was um, kind of in line with what I was talking about earlier in my own practice, in my own sort of frustrations, just sensing that there's something not quite f- fully um, addressed in what I was, you know, in my interactions with patients. And so I think they were alluding to the same thing, this sort of spidey sense that there was something beyond just the individual or in um, themselves. Admittedly, I don't think they, you know, in our education initiative, I don't think they got to the, um, a robust understanding of, you know, what systems were at play and what were some of those... Um, so those forces that were influencing the way they thought or the clinic, the other clinicians in the clinic or the patients thought, um, but they were getting at it. I think those spidey senses were the sort of the beginnings of, and we talk about in the paper, it's sort of this awakening of that the realization that there's something beyond just what they were doing with the patient, like you know range of motion or manual muscle testing.
0: And in your view, is it a natural awakening? What does it happen to everyone, or, or is it got to come about through kind of sheer brute force, or, or sure. encouraging? Obviously, not brute force, but you know, I mean, I guess the pandemic was a, was kind of brutal in terms of making making people forcing people to change some of their habits, if you like, for practice. But mm-hmm. I guess I'm thinking mm-hmm. about experienced clinicians that may never kind of awaken, if you like, and they may still be focusing on. Range of motion and all those kind of traditional concepts which they were taught. And and I suppose, yeah, I suppose, it's, what are your thoughts about that? That clearly there are some practitioners that go through their entire careers and never necessarily view these other ways of
1: viewing practice. Mm-hmm. Great question. I think from my own, so from a very academic view, um, so a lot of the literature on developing epistemic reflexivity or cognition um comes from teacher education and um, they talk about how it's it needs to be deliberate so this idea of building capacity f- to be reflexive so from an academic point of view i c- it's hard to see how it would just develop naturally part of it mm-hmm. is because i think epistemic cognition involves your own dispositions, your beliefs. So there's a skill to it, but there's also this idea that dispositions and beliefs that need to be sort of interrogated and and looked at more deeply because they are so deeply ingrained in us. It's hard to kind of surface unless we pay attention to it deliberately. So from an academic point of view, I think it does need some some, um, specific explicit attention. From my own experience, I think I see both interacting with clinicians who are involved in our program as well as students. I think it varies depending on their own dispositions, like where they've come from, like what their experiences have been up until physio school and also experiences as they become, you know, uh, a physiotherapist and then beyond. So I think it's highly varied and some it'll come way easier. And for some it'll be a bit more of uh, a bit more work and, and maybe more structure to kind of, as you said, brute force, not, not quite, but some, some facilitation. <laughs> yeah. yeah.
0: yeah. And, and in your view, in your experience, students can be kind of fragile beings. You know, they're kind of learning things. They've got this kind of developing professional identity, <laughs> reflexivity can be quite uncomfortable when you talk about epistemic discomfort. I'm not sure if if this is what you're alluding to, but certainly you're really questioning the taken-for-granted assumptions around practice, around work. It's one thing, you're doing that 10 years out when you're perhaps a bit more robust, but probably more stubborn, maybe. Whereas if you're still in your second or third year at college and then someone begins to give you a good old shake when you're still just trying to settle into who you are, what you're going to do. That's how, how do you kind of navigate the, hmm. that that, not shattering them too much, but enough that they, they kind of get a bit more robust in, in their thinking.
1: That's a really good question. And it's something that we are kind of looking at ourselves as we have injected more of this kind of curriculum, if you will, into our uh, physio program. So I think bottom line is, I, I think students, learners, let's just say learners. So whether they're students in physio school or, or after they've graduated from physio school, I think learners are much more um, up for this kind of um, interrogation of their own assumptions, et cetera, if the environment is uh, deemed safe for them to do so. So I think that safety part is something we've been trying to uh, work on and be really attuned to.
0: And what is that? So let's just kind of describe what that safety part is. What what is a safe environment to begin to declare these these thoughts or feelings?
1: Yeah. So as you can imagine, this is quite vulnerable work, right? So to do that, to interrogate your own assumptions that you've kind of believed in or that you've kind of um, learned, acquired for so long and that uh, you've practiced based on those. So I think an environment where vulnerability is um, encouraged, so both from the either the facilitator, instructor, faculty point of view, I think probably first and foremost, um, and then inviting the students to be vulnerable as well. So I think that kind of safe environment can't, I shouldn't say can't, but is is hard to achieve when you're in a group of 200 people. Um, no, definitely not at first, less likely at first, but, you know, in a more intimate kind of setting where you're in smaller groups or where the uh, instructor, the facilitator is modeling that for you. And so that's something that we've been trying to do more explicitly is the model for them. We call this exercise fishbowl so you know other people might be listening in on it but the intimate conversation about in um, sort of surfacing some of these assumptions about your your own practice comes first maybe from the instructor someone who they see uh, and, and respect in the program and then inviting the students so so, and, and also stepwise, I think breaking it down is smaller steps and integrating different things. So things that are maybe less, um, contentious to start off with, something that's, that's really accessible to the students and then deepening their understanding of, you know, how that might uh, have an impact uh, on their own practice. I think modeling to me is, is really key for a couple of reasons. I don't think the student, it comes, this comes naturally to, those who are not, who are new to developing reflexivity. Mm. And then also, as I said, just being, you know, modeling vulnerability for the students.
0: Uh, And what happens when they, if they direct their kind of reflexive gaze to what they've been taught? And so, and to the curriculum which they're currently engaged in. I mean, this is a challenge that we have where you want learners, students, in my case, to be, of you know, critically aware and to ask questions and to evaluate practice knowledge and and not take things at, at face value, but you create these not hypercritical but critical novice clinicians that can revolt <laughs> and say why why was this why are we taught this or yeah, that doesn't make any sense or look at the look at the kind of assumptions there and this is data those, you know, So, what have you have there been the experiences when the learner students kind of direct their reflexive gaze back onto the institution, which is
1: encouraging the reflexivity. Yes, um, let me just think for a second how to answer that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. The short answer is yes. Um, we, I've had that experience, um, not so much in uh, in the sense of a revolt, but you know they <laughs> they do they do um, reflect that back on our uh, us as instructors and faculty. Um, you know, why are we learning this way? So I, I think a couple things have to happen. And, and this is a process, you know, injecting something like this into a program and embedding it meaningfully takes a long time. And alongside of this, you know, putting this in the curriculum and introducing and embedding this in the curriculum requires our faculty to be on board as well. So faculty for us would mean those who do a lot of the teaching uh, in-class teaching, as well as those who are in the supervisory roles in the internships, et cetera. So beyond the walls of the institution, I think, because they there's so many touch points with the students. So as you can imagine, that kind of effort takes a long time to get everyone on the same page, to value reflexivity. I think that's one of the things to be con- coherent and consistent in that kind of messaging to our students. Not that they won't um, reflect it back on us, but I think it would help them see that we're all on the same page and saying the same thing, and what we value is more than just you know a research article about something in practice. That also yeah. that practice also informs our knowledge, um, and that that we value what happens in that single interaction with a patient. That that is also that experience with the patient is also knowledge. So I think. Having a more full sort of a faculty development initiative or efforts to bring everyone on the same page. So we've started that, but it's you know as as I said, it takes years to kind of get everyone on the same page. I shouldn't say same page, probably similar page. Same book, <laughs> same book.
0: But <laughs> I think tied to that, you know, and I'm it's the same kind of answer is that the curriculum kind of present a model of practice to to students. And yet the epistemic reflexivity kind of making the familiar strange or making strange encourages people to think about other ways to practice and different ways to practice. And I just wonder if that's a tension point that you're, that because curriculums are kind of a, it's not, it's not like some kind of sales brochure, but this, you know, what's in the curriculum is a kind of, Flavour of physiotherapy or a flavour of osteopathy, which is tied to that particular institution's own identity and values, and and you're kind of saying this is you know, this is what this kind of physio is like when they graduate. This is what this from that from this school, and this and again, it's just I'm just one of the tension about encouraging students to think openly and differently, and be creative in how they practice, but at the same time, which might be quite different perhaps to how they're currently being encouraged to practice through their curriculum. Mm.
1: Yeah, I think you hit on a really important point because it's, it can be definitely a source of tension and students sense it. Like, I mean, they are the ones who experience the full program in its entirety versus as us instructors and faculty, we are intensely, you know, involved in parts of the curriculum. So they do, so they'll sense the tensions early on if we're not, again, on on the same page or, um, so, what we've, I think, tried to do is uh, outline a philosophy of teaching and learning for the entire program that gets at that, that, you know, it's, it. we're, we're not trying, we're, we're not candle in the wind, like whatever, come, you know, we're not trying to promote this idea that, you know, multiple, multiple ways of doing things is the only way that um, there are certain approaches to practice that are dominant and there are reasons that they're dominant. Let's think about some of those reasons. So in that kind of philosophy of looking at our practice and learning that way, um, hopefully we'll address that tension, maybe not in its entirety, but it, it, it signals to the students that we're aware of that, that there are, are tensions that arise. Um, how do we manage those tensions versus not talking about it at all and then letting it, let the tensions rise and then addressing it. I think that To me, that probably is a fruitful way of approaching those tensions. So kind of at the outset, to lay the foundation that this is how we will be learning in the next two, three years in the program. And here's how we'll be dealing with some of those tensions that will inevitably arise. And these are fruitful tensions. These are things that are purposely in the program so that you can be practicing in a way that's helpful in, you know, beyond your years in the university. You know, we talk about reflexivity as a, uh, like, you know, making strange, um, some of our assumptions and deeply embedded practices, et cetera, and sort of questioning things that are not usually questioned. question. Um, I think what comes to mind is in terms of investigating more deeply the habitus, the idea of habitus is that it's gotta be a social process. I think the... Reflection part is important, so the introspection of the individual reflection is important. But it can only be helpful if it moves beyond that. I think so. That social process and then perhaps towards an action action oriented process, I think is the other part that's critical to epistemic reflexivity. um That in-
0: so social in so much as the kind of group work. I mean, rather than just thinking and contemplating by oneself it's social in so much as it you're drawing upon kind of social interactions or discourse
1: exactly social discourse so it could be listening in on as i was talking to you about um the idea of fishbowl so you know it's um a bunch of learners looking in or listening in on um a reflective discussion or an analysis Uh, um so something like that where there's there's you're listening in, but also there are opportunities for idea, exchange of thought and ideas. Um, and towards some sort of end that, you know, what could be done? Like, what are some possible actions or alternative ways of, of doing things? I think that's the part that might be different from just thinking. Just like, a, you know, here's a self-reflective exercise or task for the learner to do. Um, is sort of the so what part of that.
0: Yeah. And I think you know the the, the bit about alternative ways of practicing and doing, or certainly doing, it really speaks to a, a reconceptualization of practice. Well, if we're presuming that practice is like this and there are certain actions which are part of practice, we're really thinking outside of those. We, we need to change the kind of foundations of what we think practice is in order to allow us to go into these other these other ways of doing or thinking.
1: I think there are two parts to it. I think thinking and action are linked, but could be for, for the learner to be a bit more specific around, you know, what, what's al- alternate, what alternative actions or thought could be is possible. So for example, like it's, it's not just about how will I act differently, but it's also like, why would I want to act differently? So, so, The thought behind it also, I think, could be part of that action-oriented process. So the ways of thinking, ways of doing.
0: Can you ground that in an example, like an everyday example that might resonate with, with listeners?
1: So quality of life, for example, if I conceptualize quality of life in a certain way that maybe privileges or prioritizes what I value, and I impose that on the the patient that I'm I'm working on, um, working with, and I think that the, you, you need both, right? If I th- think a certain way about what quality of life means, I will assess and treat and interact with my patient very differently. If I don't think about quality of life in multiple ways and uh, alternative ways of thinking about quality of life and what that means, um, so that might be. That might influence, you know, the outcome measure I use, the way I talk about it, the goals I set with my with my patient.
0: And certainly being open to there are alternative ways of, of thinking about quality of life. I'm interested in what this person thinks about quality of life and going from there and being open to it. It might just so happen it's congruent with, you know, your own view of quality of life. It often isn't, but there'll be certainly nuances and details right. and, and bits which might cause you to, to lead, might change your action or lead you to a different approach exactly if there if there were kind of pointers or or for students or learners that want to become more reflective or engage in reflexivity or engage in epistemic reflexivity what where do where does one start i mean they're not part of a, a a kind of educational program just working clinicians but want to think more deeply about these things how would you suggest that they start
1: I think this is probably easier said than done, but I think finding someone who, uh, who's a, a reflexive practitioner, and just begin chatting with them and to to kind of mentor mentor you along. I've certainly benefited from being in uh, a faculty where there are critical thinkers who are reflexive about practice, and they, that's you know their their research. That's their that's their work. I, I think that's, you know, again, easier said than done. But finding someone who you can model some of these uh, reflective activity, tasks, analysis after. There's so much, so much rich, richness in that kind of discussion with someone.
0: How how, how do you find that? I mean, because I guess the presumption is, well, I'll go to the experienced clinicians, they'll be reflexive because as you get experience, you get better at everything. But it's not, Simple, you wouldn't necessarily just go by years and experience. I guess, again, I'm, I'm, I'm fortunate too. I've got colleagues who are experienced, but reflexive and smart and, you know, wise and all that stuff. But what are the characteristics that you might look for? Like what would you, beyond then, beyond just experience or years in practice?
1: Yeah, I think experience in practice um, is not necessary, as you alluded to, is not necessarily the, the characteristic I'd look for. Um, I think someone who's open to uh, different ways of thinking, and that they are they're willing to discuss their vulnerabilities. We talked about this earlier in the in the session today about vulnerability. I think um, someone who's devu- is who can model vulner- vulnerability um, and create that sort of safe environment for that, that kind of discussions. For you yourself to be vulnerable and talk about some of the things that might be a bit more contentious or more personal.
0: And, uh, you know, the epistemic humility to
1: mm.
0: to know that you don't know, and that's yeah. okay, and let's talk about that and share that.
1: I love that term, epistemic humility.
0: Yeah, I, I, it's been used a few times. I think mm-hmm. Matt Lowe has used it. And I think when I spoke with Martin Cush, who's a relativist philosopher, and he talked about epistemic Humility, I think. Could be wrong. Certainly mm. Matt Lewis used it.
1: Mm. I love that term. Eason,
0: thank you so much.
1: No problem. This is fantastic. Thanks for having me.
0: If you enjoyed this podcast, visit www.wordsmatter-education.com for all the show notes, resources and blogs and check out the online course in language and communication in relation to back pain. And I'll see you next time.